Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, I hope you're enjoying the summer. It's almost over. We're in August. It's a brand new episode. We have some funny friends. We have our man for the month, Chuck Nice. Chuck Nice is a veteran. I've known Chuck forever since our days at the Comic Strip Live. For years, Chuck has made a name for himself across all mediums, including radio, television, and digital media. Chuck has delivered a TED Talk on the main stage of the Vancouver Conference. He's a co-host of Star Talk with, yes, none other than... Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, as well as host of Brain Games on the Road on Disney Net Geo, and How to Buy Like a Mega Millionaire, Home Strange Home on HGTV, as well as appearing in Adam Sandler's The Day Of and Kevin Kenway. He's been in many other films and TV projects. Chuck still finds time to rock the stages most weekends in New York City, so please check him out. Also, welcome back my young star, Noye Brown-West. Noye is a New York-based Nigerian-American comedian writer. She's been featured in the Boston Globe's Rise column as a comic to watch. And we agree. You can also hear her. She's been heard on NPR, PBS, ABC, Sway in the Morning. And she's been seen in the New York Comedy Festival. Noye made her acting debut in The Sympathy Car, now available for streaming on Vudu, Apple, Amazon, and Google Play. So check her out. Soon she'll be featuring for another one of our friends, Zainab Johnson. You have to listen to the episode to find out where and when. You can hear us on Google Podcasts now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. That's important. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast. And Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. Special shout out to our Patreon friends is because of you we keep going now for our golden friends you have the option to watch our recordings live backstage that's every monday 1 p.m eastern standard time don't miss it go to patreon backslash friends like us and be golden merch is available we have t-shirts hoodies coffee mugs face masks and tank tops they're all available just go to my website marinafranklin.com weekly on my youtube channel i go live that's every saturday this past few weeks we had some friends on we had like sujay thank you for joining us and we have evelyn frick and that wacky friend dave Jessica. we give updates to the show we shout out fans who leave reviews and we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by and sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows with friends like us it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Be nice. And Black Lives Matter. I have two really great guests. Chuck Nice. He's our man for the month. And Noye Brown West. My young star. She's always here and we love her so far. <laughs> I did not know this was a musical. Uh, no one told me, and I am very happy. Uh, <laughs> can we just sing? I'm sorry. Can we just sing the whole podcast? Yes, we can. <laughs> I'm not very good. <laughs> it's just always fun. But it was so, you know, no, yeah. So I saw Chuck at New York Comedy Club, which is such a fun club, it by really the way. Is. I have fun time when I'm there. And there's certain clubs, I'm not going to mention any names, um, but there's one club that I worked at that I haven't worked at in a while, and I was just, like, depressed. I was like, I, there's no good hang. And then, uh, so afterwards, when you you did your last joke, and I was like, I got to have you back on the podcast. It was just so yeah. funny, that joke you do, because you work with your daughter. I do, my, my little 10-year-old, who is my favorite child because she makes money. Um, she has jobs. And so she is, she has a a sizable bank account. And so I tell the other two, listen, daddy's love can be bought. This is what y'all do not understand. You want my approval? You want my love? Put some money in the bank. And let me tell you something. I will be your biggest fan. But no, I I love her so much because she is, uh, and I'm such a narcissist. She's the one that's most like me. Let's, I'm sorry. That's all there is to it. Well, can I tell the audience what she did before you? We logged on. Yeah, which yeah. was so sweet. No, you you missed this. No. She had accidentally popped into the room and then kind of went back out, and then we hadn't recorded yet. So she comes back in. I introduce myself to her. She's so sweet, and she. I go, why did you? 
what made you come into the room? She goes, well, well, Chuck, you say it. She said, I have to have, I have to hug my dad every day when I come home before I go upstairs. I have to hug my dad. Oh my goodness. Now that sounds sweet, but what she doesn't say uh, is that it is compulsory. It, that's my rule. <laughs> <laughs> I make them. Oh, I didn't know. So my so my rule for the house um, <laughs> is that you cannot come into this home without hugging your father, and you cannot leave without hugging me and saying I love you. That is my rule for that's the house rule, and I am very adamant about um, making you know making that sticking to that rule. So every morning, I got a 17-year-old son, too, and he, oh, you know how 17-year-olds are. Oh, my goodness. And a boy on top of it. And so he comes downstairs in the morning, you know, all, you know, crusty-eyed and, you know, just like, yo, what's up? What's up? And I'm I'm like, first of all, it's good morning, Dad, not what's up? (laughs) What's up? (laughs) You know? Like, like he used to say to me, he used to call me son. He'd be like, yo, son. I'd be like, I am not your son. You cannot call me son. You cannot call me dude. You don't call me bruh. You don't call, I'm dad. That's it. Dad or sir. If you want to be formal, you can call me sir. But I'm dad. And he was like, you call me son all the time. I'm like, nigga, you my son. (laughs) (laughs) Now you just call him nigga too. You're like, you upgraded it. No, he made me so happy. I was so upset. I'm like, when I call you son, I'm not doing it like a like a slang term. I'm calling you like my son. You are my son. You know? And so, but anyway, every day when he gets up, yo, what's up? What's up? And then I I just stand there silently and I stand there until he goes, Oh man. And he comes over and hugs me. I love it. We were talking about this generation is an interesting one. Uh, You know, I am finding they are very difficult to work with. And it's, it's funny. It's like, um, they are smart. They are aware of their power. They are conscientious. Like we were saying, they have, they understand the world, but there is a respectful thing missing. There is a respect element. Well, you know why? Because um, this is like the generation coming up now where they feel as though they are equals to, you know, like I said, like my eldest daughter, she looks at me like, you know, you you fucked up the world. Excuse my language. But she's like, <laughs> no, you could do it. Yeah, you fucked up the world. And, you know, my generation is the one that's going to come up with the answers and fix it, you know. So there's this kind of parody that they feel like they're equal to you in some way, whereas... You know, when I was growing up, my mother used to say to me, you know, I'm not your friend. Tell your friends I'm not your friend. Don't talk to me like I'm your friend, okay? Because you will end up with no friends. <laughs> yes. Because you, you can't have friends when you six feet in the ground. You can't have friends, so. I, I think everybody's like that before they're 25, though. That's my theory. True. Everybody before they're 25 thinks they know everything. No. No? I was terrified at 20. Under, when I was under, when I was in my 20s, I was terrified of the older generation. I had a fear. Fear. And, and it was, well, and that's I what remember I'm saying. it. That's what I'm saying, the equality thing. There's no fe- My children do not fear me the way my parents, uh, I feared my parents. And I feared yeah. my parents well into my adulthood. I feared not only, like, their, like, repercussions, uh, you know, repercussive actions. That's one thing. I feared, like, their opinion of me. Their approval, like like the fact that they could withhold approval from me was a big deal. You know, I there was a lot of there was a lot of psychological mind games that they played on me <laughs> that all these parents of my generation that, yeah. that they played on us that we don't we haven't done to this generation. I think the millennial, like, I think it might've started with us, unfortunately then, because I'm thinking about, it's like, I was afraid of my parents. They did make me call them formal names. Like it was mommy or daddy or mother or father. And my grand, my grandfather was sir. Mm. And my Nigerian families don't play. Yeah, Mm. exactly. I had a great grandmother when I was um, still young, like very formal, very formal way of talking. But in, and like your like daughter, the 10-year-old that has jobs, 
Um, <laughs> you were always working. I started working when I was eight. Yeah, me too. Um, now and now Take in my six. now in my adulthood, it's like I have a, a million jobs that I still am treated like I have no jobs because I'm not making the money my siblings make. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that, you know, yeah. that, where but there's. I, there might be something good to it, though, the fact that they don't have fear. What what happens when with a generation that doesn't fear the elders so we don't listen to their policies that are bad? We don't let them get away with things that are not good for the general public? Maybe that's okay. Well, listen, you're seeing that in the climate <laughs> discussion that yeah. we're having globally. It's, the, it's a youth-led discussion. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> action and policy has to be carried out by those who have the power, and that's people who are older. Yes. But... But the, millennials have the power now too. Yeah, the pro oh, the boy. protest and the and the and the um, you know the dissidents uh, is it, the dissidents are all young people. So yeah. you know my uh, my sister just was uh, announced president of Creative Beauty, and she got that job because she is an environmental scientist who writes policy, and she's an older millennial. <laughs> so yeah, they're everywhere doing their thing, trying to change the world. Yeah, I mean, and that's the other thing that we're Marina and I were talking. You weren't on the uh, call yet, but how you know there, in many ways, this youngest generation is better than every generation because they care. Because you know, I look at this whole thing where they talk about you know I don't even know what to call it, but I call it being conscientious. What Marina said, so they call it woke and they call it you know liberal and you know the libs or whatever. But it's really young people saying. People who are least able to protect themselves deserve the most protection. Yeah. And that just makes sense to me. I don't care. And I grew up in a time where it was perfectly acceptable to call somebody the F word. It was perfectly acceptable to call a woman the B word. It was perfectly acceptable. It's still acceptable to, to use the N word. And I, I was really against that for the longest time, because I was raised that you don't ever use that word. But now I realize that the reason why I was against that is because I felt some um, obligation that if I say it, then I'm making it okay for other people to say it. And then it just dawned on me, no, no. it is okay for Black people to have something their own. And if it is, I can, in a term of endearment or as a joke or as a being funny, say nigga to another black person. If I can do that, then, and you can't, too damn bad. What is it that you can't even be in a position where you can't have one thing that I have? <laughs> Niggas can't have one thing. <laughs> Niggas can't have one thing, okay? If that's, we're taking back the B word too. And I, I'm part of the queer community. And there was a discussion recently where gay men are allowed to say the F word and queer women were allowed to say the D word. Like, I, you yeah. know, I just emceed the New York Dyke March. And like, you know, we're taking oh, nice. that. Yeah, we're taking that yeah. back. Taking and then, you know, and it's funny because I do understand that. It's so I used to back when I lived in Philadelphia, I basically hung out with just gay men. And, you know, because they were the most interesting people in, in, in my life. That was, it, you know, and I, you know, not being, being a cisgender, you know, straight man hanging out with a bunch of gay men and they called each other faggot. And I never used that word. Yep. And I would get called that word because I was hanging out with them, but I still would never, even as a term of endearment, say to them, you know, Hey, what's or you know, that's, or that, you know, uh, so, and they, now what I did do is funny because for some reason <laughs> they called each other bitch too. And they see, called, I, I, the first time I got called a bitch was from my dad's best friend who was gay. And I was, I, I was like, Oh, and so <laughs> the funny thing is, you know, um, I did do that. I had no problem, but see, I won't call a woman that, you mm. know what I mean? But like I had gay friends that, you know, bitch, please. That was, that was a thing. And I didn't have any problem saying it back. But, you know, saying the F word or saying bitch to a woman, never, no, can't do it. So, I mean, I, I think that everybody is intelligent enough to understand that there are historical references to words. Words do have power, but they also don't have power. And that you can take power from a word when you use it, but that doesn't mean that you're taking power from the word when you use it, yeah. okay? So you being somebody who is not in that group, 
using the word is not empowering. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at that point, it becomes, and I, this is what I'd say to anybody who, who disagrees with me, because I've had people say, well, aren't you giving people permission? And why is it that you can say it that I can't? And I'm like, Eminem is the one white person in the world of all the white people in the world that should be able to say nigga. And you ain't never heard him say nigga, ever. So if <laughs> Eminem can't say it, then you know damn well you can. You know, so. Chuck, I got to say this well, before yeah. you continue. <laughs> Your hairline looks oh. <laughs> incredible. I don't know what you're doing because I am so jealous. Like, I'm struggling with my hairline. Like, I feel like we have the same haircut, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and I'm like, I'm looking at you and I'm like, it's just perfectly. <laughs> and I was like, like, because see, I have like, I'm going through menopause. So there's, it's in his baby hair and it's struggling. Okay. So but I'm not, I'm not even going to lie. All right. Is there some yes. pain in there? No. Oh, well, no, Um, it's two things. It's, um hems which oh. is a spray that works and it brings the hair in fully on your hairline it's called hems it's called hems and it works that's it I'm, looks so i'm not good. even going to like front like this is just me no, it's hems it's you fantastic. spray it on and it, it grows your hair in it takes about six months, but it grows your hair in. It's called Whoa. Hims. Can and I the, use it? Is Hims I, good for yeah, her? Hims, I, I don't. I don't know if Hims is good for her. <laughs> oh no! I cut. Marina knows this story. I was cutting a lace off a wig, and I had it on my head, and I cut like my entire hairline on my left side, like back, like two inches. Ooh. And it just started growing back because I've been doing really good protective styles. But mm. yeah, oh and and the other thing is. Um, if you look, you can see it's thin. So I fill it in with uh, these little spray fibers. It's like actual hair fibers that you just fill in. Wow. Yeah, I put it in a little. I need I, to get some hems. Yeah. The, but the hems, I'm telling you, I had no hair here and the hems grew it in. Ooh. They yeah. have one called hers too, I imagine. They have to. Oh, they have to. Yeah. I, I'm sure. I I'm was sure. talking to someone. There's a lot of the the white guy comics are all going to the same reconstructive hair person in turkey right no no here oh, in whoa. new york in new york twenty thousand dollars a pot oh, in turkey, like, you get it for five grand i won't tell you where but. well i ain't going to turkey but twenty twenty thousand dollars okay and that's a lot of money they have to stay home for 10 days after whoa. they get the surgery and they set take seven hours and the person is very 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 good so that's i won't say the comics that go Cause that that's there for them to say. I mean, one of them actually does it in their act, but it's like, does oh, it does it does it work on any kind of hair? Because you know, this I'll- is the thing. I don't think so because the the conversation I had was that the woman who is the secretary was like, oh no, it's a big day today because we have someone with curly hair. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, "That's not good." Yeah, that 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 does that doesn't inspire confidence in me. That's all I'm saying. That's why I said all the white guy comics are going oh, to. Oh, okay. You remember? Yeah. Do you remember when LeBron started getting his? It took him a long time because I think he tried to get his during the season. So you're you're not allowed to. You're supposed to rest after you get them. And he was playing basketball, so his grew in patchy. But now oh. if you look at LeBron, his look good now. But he got um, hair plugs. Oh God, when was okay. it? Like, seven years ago okay. and he was getting made fun of a lot because he didn't have time to stay at home and rest probably. And he had little like tufts of hair. Yeah. Well, that ain't yeah. good. Yeah. It was I don't, bad. I, that's, that's bad. Yeah. 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 You can't, you, this ain't a lawn. You can't be having grab crabgrass growing up yeah. on, in your, on your dome. And you got to so. stay rest. If they say that's what you got to do when you got to do yeah. that. Cause you paying all that $20,000. I'm like, damn, some of these calm white guy comments are doing pretty well. Yeah, anyway, yeah. let's talk. Let's get into these topics. <laughs> oh, we and got it, topics. It's, it's all good. If you didn't read it, it's, uh, I, I did not. I'm I do gonna, my I'm little. I'm confess. I didn't do my homework. It's all right. It's all right. Because I know you, Chuck. I know you're smart. I know you can get through this. We're talking about the labor strikes that's happening. The surge of labor strikes as workers demand fairness and change. It's Solidarity like, now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like what we were talking about, like with the young generation. This was done by Script News by Lauren Magarino and Rodney Young. Now, from entertainment to service industries to unhappy graduate student workers, U.S. employees across various professions and skill sets 
are walking off the job in 2023. Their demands are unique to their respective jobs, but economists say they share a common goal. Dr. Anthony Carnival is a research professor and a director of Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. And he says there's a reason for the hopefully temporary employee exodus, a movement now being dubbed the hot labor summer, where people in various professions are pushing for better pay amid rising costs and record profits for many businesses. Now, you all know we're on a strike, actors strike. Yep. Writers. Are you in the unions, Chuck? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yes. And I voted for the strike. I support the strike. I've been out once. I get the updates and I'm looking... I'm going to be honest, it's not going to be this week because it's going to be 100 degrees. <laughs> I'm committed, but I am also delicate. So, um, but yeah, I'm 100% about it. I think it's, um, you know, what we've had over the past 20 years, maybe 30, is a consolidation of power and industry. And we've had a consolidation caused by technology. So, you have two types of consolidation happening. One is technology is driving business to smaller and smaller groups of people controlling larger swaths of a market. That's number one. So that's your social media. That's your uh, gig economy. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing you have is consolidation by consumption, which is um, l larger companies snapping up other companies. So now you got two, three companies that run everything and what they want to do is they want to get rid of the worker because the worker is always the largest expense that any uh, company can have. And um, I'm trying to figure out, you know, who's going to have any money to buy anything that these companies are making if they want to pay everybody nothing and get rid of as many workers as possible. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. And it, it's not it's just it's not it's untenable. It's not right. It's, you know, it's it, it puts it puts our economy at risk and uh, it more importantly lowers the political power that we have as a working force in this nation. So, you know, and we went through it. Remember, remember when they said they couldn't raise minimum wage for the yes, longest uh -huh. time? Remember when they were saying, oh, well, we can't raise minimum wage. It will destroy the economy. We just can't do it. Um, it will lead to this and that and the inflation. It will lead to all these things. Then we had the pandemic. Everybody was like, yo, I'm not going back to that crappy job for $7 an hour. <laughs> right. Okay. People were just like, I'm done. And then what you ended up with is <clears throat> they had to pay people more. Then we had some inflation and they were like, oh, see what happened? Paying people more led to inflation. Only to find out is what led to inflation were supply chain issues and the fact that companies were taking the opportunity to raise prices because we were experiencing some inflation. Now, what are we seeing? We're seeing that wages have not come down. They have gone up. They have continued to go up. Inflation is coming down. Yeah. And we have a workforce that is being paid a living wage. And so now, you know, as far as the union is concerned and, and the actor strike, um, what they're trying to do is in every iteration and incarnation of technological advance, we have seen actors make less money. Yeah. People think that actors are rich. Actors are working people. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer Aniston is rich. Brad Pitt is rich. Uh, Tom Cruise is rich. Uh, you know, yes, Larry David is rich. Chris Rock is rich. These are the people who are in, you know, the top of the top. But they're like every other rich person in every other field. They're the 1% <laughs> of all the people who are working. So, you know, most actors are working people, you know. You so. know, I said this on the last show that we had that it's hard for people to understand this because they have ex access to all of these shows right now that are streaming and they're right. going to the movies this weekend and they're hearing about Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer and Barbie and they're seeing that people are enjoying their summers and they have access right now. They have access 
to it. So they don't really care. Yeah. Because they're just like, it's not affecting their lives. So whatever. Until, Mm -hmm. but this is why this article is so great because it's showing that every industry is striking. It's not just the actor's industry. It's it's not just entertainment. It's also like the United States Postal Service. Mm-hmm. So potentially next... Um, UPS, yeah. Yeah, people in various professions are pushing for better pay. Potentially next to join is the U.S. workers. Hundreds of thousands of UPS workers, unionized drivers, have until July 31st, that's coming up, to reach a new labor agreement and avert a strike. A strike that could deal a devastating blow to not only the company, but the U.S. economy. Because here's the thing, like, if the postal workers strike, things like food can't be delivered. Like farmers EPS, yeah. can't deliver their product. Yeah. Like phones for, like, Apple industries, tech industries can't get to you. Right. Um, and so one major U.S. consulting firm is putting the cost of a 10-day UPS strike on the U.S. economy at a whopping $7 billion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, listen, I worked for UPS for one um, uh, week of a summer. <laughs> <laughs> I was what they call an unloader. So you have the guys that yep. load, the bo- load the trucks. You have the guys that unload the trucks, and then there's uh, the people who work in. Like, that's the bottom of the bottom, the loaders and the I unloaders. did that job, too. I was, yeah. I was a trucker in college, summer job. That is no joke. At 3 o'clock in the morning was when my shift started. They would open up the container, which is the, you know, when you see those giant trucks on the road, and those containers are the, the back of the 18-wheeler. And the heat would rush out like there was a fire inside of that container. And then they would tell you that you had to do, I don't know, it was some insane amount of boxes per hour, like 1,300 or per shift. Or, it was insane. And there was, I had a supervisor who would stand and he would just come by and he would call, call my name, like scream it like I was in the army and, and tell me how worthless I was. <laughs> Oh my God! Oh, it was terrible. Yeah, like, it was. It was terrible. Oh, this generation could not handle that. And let me just say this: um, if th- if it is anywhere like like it was when I worked at UPS, just that one job, I say pay them whatever the hell they want. Um, so anyway, um, he called me lazy one night. Oh no! And I walked off. I, I left, you know, and um, as I was walking out. I was just screaming at the top of my lungs, walking through the uh, the bay. Y'all don't have to take this. <laughs> this shit is bullshit. Y'all don't have to take this shit. I'm not taking this shit. And I just walked off. You know what I mean? And that was how many years ago? Oh, I was 18. And it know, doesn't uh, sound like it's changed. I don't it think it's been. changed. I don't think it's changed that much. Nope. Because this is this is what I'm talking about. The model for making money. You have to understand these companies. What they want to do is. All they care about is shareholders. So let's look at the pandemic of what the pandemic did for a company like UPS and FedEx. Now, UPS pays a very competitive wage. Let's not, let's not be uh, mistaken. They pay a competitive wage in the industry. They pay a very good wage. Okay. But is it worth it? Is, is, is it a valued, uh, um, is, it, is it a, a, a wage of value? That where the person is valued okay, or getting the value of what they're putting in. No, it is not. Okay. So what happened during the pandemic? We shipped more stuff than we've ever shipped ever because we were all at home buying crap and doing. Well, they had the best two years that they've ever had in the history of their company. But oh, then when oh, yeah, people- And I know this because we follow stocks very closely. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Okay. We just finished our stock class yesterday. So. Oh, fantastic. Yes, but go ahead. Yeah. So the best two years <laughs> they've ever had in the history of their company has just happened in the last two years. And now, what do they do with that money? Do they share any of that wealth with their workforce? No. What they want to do is use that money to do stock buybacks, okay, which makes their stock more valuable, and, of course, to pay dividends to the shareholders. So... Um, once again, you have a large group of people 
who are laboring and a very small group of people who are benefiting from that labor, but then they want to turn around and get government assistance on top of that so that your tax dollars on the little bit of shit money that you're making goes to benefit them. So they benefit all the way around the wheel. And this is the problem. And yet student loan forgiveness is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. We couldn't do that. How could we do that? I mean, there's a moral hazard attached to that. You can't just let people think they're going to get an education for nothing. Education should cost something. It is worth something, so it should cost something. Is this yeah, people is this like is capitalism bad? <laughs> <laughs> now, now that's hard for me to say because I'm a I am a capitalist. I'm the I'm the son of 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 a business owner. There are two three generations, three generations of business owners. I'm a I'm the product of that, and people who have uh, had a great deal of freedom. Um, because of capitalism and buying something for 50 cents and selling it for a dollar. Capitalism's not bad. Capitalism without guardrails is bad. Mm. Without ethics. Everybody's forgetting the ethical part. And while they're not forgetting it, they're just not doing it. It is, it is fascinating, like, how transparency now, we're seeing it because they're saying things like, we just want to see them go broke. And then, you know... Like oh, they, yeah. <laughs> like in the, the was it Bob Iger from Disney was like, this is a really bad time for this to be happening and it's unreasonable and right. I, like, like like you came by while he was in the shower, <laughs> you know this I'm sorry this is a bad time. <laughs> yeah, I mean these people make three hundred and I think it's three hundred and three hundred three hundred times more than. The people their average actually, worker yeah some of them 500 times and some of them more than that um you know uh it's it's in some countries they have it so that there are laws that regulate how much more you as the kind of not owner because a private company you shouldn't be able to tell them what to do your private company your private company but publicly traded companies and companies that sell even preferred and private stock, you are not allowed to make 500 times what your employees make. Where's that? That's here? No, that that is not. There's, and I don't want to say the country because I'm going to be wrong, but uh, I I was reading in The Economist about, of course, they were against it. (laughs) Of course. Of course they were against it. Well, should we call it the greed, you know, for them, for these CEOs, it's the greed economy. For us, it's the gig economy. For them, it's the greed. Now, I, I do want to move to this other article about San Francisco because my sister lives there. And I feel like it represents like all of also New York and other cities. Um, San Francisco's downtown is a wake up call. San Francisco has become the prime example of what downtown should look like. Or I mean, shouldn't. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> of what they shouldn't look like. Basically, you know, they're saying that San Francisco is not going to come back because it's vacant, crime ridden and in various stages of decay. But in truth, it's just one of many cities across the U.S. whose downtowns are reckoning with post pandemic wake up call. Diversify right. or die is what mm. they're saying. As the pandemic bore down in early 2020, it drove people out of the city centers and boosted shopping and dining in residential neighborhoods and nearby suburbs as workers stayed closer to home. No longer the purview of office workers, downtowns must become around-the-clock destinations for people to congregate, says Richard, his last name is Florida, that's fun, a specialist in city planning at the University of Toronto. They're no longer central business districts and they they're centers of innovation, of entertainment, of recreation. The faster places realize that. Oh, the faster these places realize that, the better. So like, I don't know, you're we're all comics and we go on the road and I have seen this where I'm going like I forget where I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma or other places like I was in also in Utah right after the pandemic and I was on tour with Hannah Gatsby and I did a couple of places that it just 
I'm looking at their downtown and I'm like, it's desert. Yeah. I, I just got back from LA a couple of weeks ago and um, the number of tents on the street, uh, beyond disturbing. Um, and there was a big mural and it said uh, something along the line of who gets paid when there is no housing. Like there's a reason why this is happening. Um, downtowns, this has happened before. It was happened in the eighties where all the cities seemed to be, uh, I just lost my light. Um, I know it's like, Oh, you you still got that gray hairline. (laughs) (laughs) No matter what light we have. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I'm just saying this has happened before. And what happened was, um, the downtowns kind of decayed. Um, Property values went way down. Uh, the cost per square foot of office rental went way down. And then what happened? People started coming back from the suburbs to the city as a revitalization effort happened. So, you know, as I'm, I kind of look at this like, are there people who are just kind of sitting around waiting to take advantage of this? Or is this something where, you know, w- we can revitalize the inner inner uh the inner cities and our uh, uh business districts in a way where uh we don't have to wait for the complete debacle to happen uh and i think that you, we can and the way you do it is through mixed use the way you do it is uh why you know why did they put why is it whenever a hotel or a bunch of restaurants open up in one area that area becomes thriving why is it whenever they build a stadium in one area and then they put a bunch of businesses and bars around the stadium, that area becomes thriving because it becomes a destination. So what you have to do is you have to make these areas a destination, but you also have to make it so that people not only go there, but the people who live there have the services, the safety, and uh, the necessary means of living you know, a quality life. Because yeah. people move out of the city out of the city for quality of life issues, and businesses can create problems for quality of life. By the way, <laughs> Marina knows that all too well. <laughs> oh, you saw me! I was ready to go in because, like, what was it? I they're doing these block party things in Harlem, and and by the way, I think New York is doing the best of all the cities uh, as far as being a destination. Like, people are coming to New York. Oh, the comedy yeah. clubs are. Still, for for the most part, they're bustling. But in other places, a lot of comedy clubs are suffering and not making it because the downtown area is not making it and the cities are not making it. I was just even talking to my cousin who lives in uh, Portland, Oregon, and he was like, it's crazy out here. He goes, I have to worry about my car being broken in by an unhoused person. I get harassed constantly. And... You know, these are family members of mine who are conscientious people. They're liberals, but they're also really getting tired of this situation. Like my sister is very clear on in San Francisco, the people on the streets, the unhoused people have more rights than the actual people who live in San Francisco who have home ownership or rent. And she's liberal and she's saying that. So something is going on where we're not communicating in our neighborhoods, we're not communicating in our communities, we're not getting transparency from government, mm. we're not getting transparency for local governments. Everyone was trying to do the same old, same old, and that shit ain't flying. It is yeah. a government issue, 100%. Like, when I was, I worked for the government in New Bedford, the mayor down there, and their goal was to revitalize the downtown, and they didn't listen to the voters because a lot of voters said, we want a Walmart. We want businesses that will bring in jobs. We want to make sure that people are not impoverished. And, you know, the government swore up and down. Yeah, we're going to work with companies to get them here. And then people with influence and money voted for that not to happen because they didn't want a Walmart in their downtown or an Amazon. Right. So it's like. You really, you, we say it time and time again, every time I'm on this podcast, 
you have to go to your council meetings. You have to be involved in politics or you're not going to see the change you want. And it's not, we can't blame the unhoused either because honestly in San Francisco, they have a horrible, uh, right now the housing market is a debacle, right? So it's yeah. going to be more and more unhoused people the longer that goes on. And this honestly connects to the last article, the strikes, because we're not getting paid enough to live in these cities. And there you go. And then that's why there's so many homeless people um, or unhoused people. So, and, and you just gave me a great idea. I'm sure somebody's thought of this. I'm not the first. I can't be. But, you know, there used to be these things called company towns. It's not what I'm talking about. But company towns were the corporation would come in and they'd be like, there's no services. There's no housing. We can't, people can't come here and work. So they would build housing. They would build like the general store. They would put all these services in. And you have that in the richest um, sectors of the economy, which is tech. Yes. Okay. You, do. You, you go to any Google. of those, you go to any of those campuses. What do you find? You find housing because you know, wherever they are, people can't afford to live. You find, uh, but you got to work for the company. Uh, you, what do they do? They feed them. <laughs> you get breakfast, <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They get video games. They get right. You know, so <laughs> it can be done. And so what I'm saying is there, there should be something where corporations help subsidize housing, um, so that they can have people working in, in their particular sector, you know, like look at Walmart. Walmart doesn't pay people anything. Uh, the average Walmart worker is on food uh, SNAP, but yet Walmart gets tax cuts as opposed to what, what are they doing with those tax cuts? Well, those tax cuts they should be using to subsidize, you know, the people who work for them. And really, how do you subsidize a person who works for you? Uh, it's called a paycheck. Yes. <laughs> That's right, Chuck. Chuck, you are so smart. I love you. Marina, do you remember the, it was, it was several shows ago, several podcasts ago, but we had an article that said that in New York, 60% of the unhoused people have part-time jobs and 40% yeah, right. of them have full-time jobs. Full-time jobs. Oh, yeah, yeah, the guy who was dropping off my laundry. I didn't know he was unhoused. He was, or he was staying in a shelter. And I, he's like, oh yeah. And he was telling me about this. And I was like, I had no idea you have a job. I thought, I, I just, I don't know why I, I always thought if you're staying in a shelter, you don't have a job. And he said, well, I, I, I can only make so much. I can't. So it's such a trap. It's like right. the welfare system. But I just, I want to make this, this, um, oh God, I'm going to forget the point. God, I hate menopause. <laughs> it just left. Oh, here it is. My friend from Ireland, her her um, person was staying with her and said this to me. She was talking about Muslim. Um, I think in Ireland, they have like immig immigrants or people coming in just like here. Mm -hmm. But she says she was talking about Muslim people. Like you got to, she was starting to start this conversation about how they don't with women. They don't I, you generalizing about how they don't respect they're women and and how the crime in, in Ireland is pretty bad because they're there. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. What you doing now? Mm. You're generalizing a whole group of people based on what? And they were trying to like say, no, but you don't know Ireland. I go, I know what's happening everywhere right now. And what's happening everywhere is we have asylum seekers, people who are legitimately trying to find a better uh, life. And that is not a bad thing. And what's happening is policies or people in, in Ireland, you could blame your government for not doing the right thing. And so what's happening is there are bad people. There, men are sexist, so you don't want to just generalize Muslim men. Men can be sexist. Not all men. Eh, but men we're raised men, to be sexist. Men can be sexist, yeah. but you're generalizing oh, you that. You can say it. We're sexist. Okay. All right. <laughs> you said. But, but what she was doing was looking at a situation that is, um, you know, a, a group of people who are now in her community that she's not used to seeing and generalizing them with 
the sexism and the crime and blaming them. And I go, the fact that you're blaming them is a problem because they're not they're not to be blamed. They're the victims. And same thing here. Unhoused people like what you just said, they're not to be blamed. They are also victims of policies that aren't working. Right. Period. And, uh, and, and listen, um, you are absolutely right about both of those things. The easiest way to solve homelessness is to get people into housing. It's that simple. Um, you know, and that means that they're already working. Now, this is where this is where I, I people don't like because I get a little too pragmatic. But I just feel like what we should be able to do is if you have a full time job, if you have a part time job, if you're working right and you're able to afford a certain amount for housing, then we should be, you, you know, and we do have voucher programs and so forth. But we need to build the housing. The problem is people don't want the housing built in their neighborhoods. It's nimbyism, not in my backyard. And this is a huge problem in every city that you go, especially cities where you have these large tech presences like San Francisco and, you know, even here in New York City. Nobody wants to build affordable housing for two reasons. But One, what, it's but not why profitable. not the offices? I, I said this in the beginning. I said, no one's going back to work. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're right. People are not going to go back to these offices um, because people don't want to be told that they have to go to work now. I mean, this has become something that is part of our cultural existence that I don't want to go to work. I want to be at work. So you have all of these buildings. And I said, and now I, I learned that the reason is because these are people who are also want to make money, right? They have this mm -hmm. property. These are contractors and owners of huge, you know, and they're like, they don't want to make it affordable housing because it's not worth it to them. No, it's so, not worth it. But also, too, you have to understand that um, they're in a bind, uh, you know, speaking as somebody who, you know, I don't want to be unfair because you buy buildings to make money. You don't buy buildings to do, you know, charity work or to be a part of a social solution. Sure. Uh, um, so you have a mortgage. And the reason why you took that mortgage is because you were counting on a certain amount of rental income to come in to make this much money plus take care of that mortgage. And uh, you can't do that with, you know, affordable housing. But government uh, can give incentives. And mm -hmm. that is where, that's where you got to have a problem. You, a lot of this is policy driven. The, you know, yeah. where people are, people don't put their vote towards solutions. We vote based on um, popularity contest. I like this person. I don't like that person. Or um, culture war issues. Or we don't vote on solutions and policy. Because that is really where a lot of these issues are going to be solved. They're going to be solved when we make good policy. And then, I mean, we, I, I worked in the social work field. I've had, I've gone from different job, different job. And the issue, there are still some states that provide money for people who cannot afford to live on their own, right? People who are disabled mentally or, and whatnot. But during Reagan, that's when the policy started where all of a sudden all these mental hospitals, all these government subsidies were gone. And Amazing. that's when America became truly the, the capitalist nation it is today, back in the 80s with him. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is, you're right. We've always been a socialistic capitalist society. That, that's what we've always been. But there's always been a push to strip the socialism out of our socialistic capitalistic society. And the reason is because you don't want... In order to make the most amount of money, you don't you don't you don't want to have that balance. You want to have it so that profit becomes king, you know, not policy, not being able to take care of people. Not, you know, it's like, yo, let me line my pockets. And I hate to sound like this because I want to line my pockets. I'm not going to lie. I'm a pocket liner. Right. But, I, but it's but, just but like I'm where the, are that with the given situation? Like, this is what I'm going to ask you both. So I'm always on the next door app and uh, I always love these conversations. And um, 
We are all going into like Rite Aids and CVSs right now where you have to ring a bell and this is <laughs> happening everywhere and you have to wait for someone to open up the thing so you can buy like toilet paper. And what it's causing is same thing like the conversation I had with this young Irish lady. It's causing some resentment towards the people who, because this was happening before they started locking up things at the Rite Aid. My sister, who was just visiting from me in Chicago, she's like, I'm buying something while I'm watching a woman stuffing <laughs> everything that she wants into her bra and walking out and they're not doing anything, but I have to pay. So it's creating that division and that resentment and that feeling of. And that is why I just steal too. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit by and watch everybody steal. I'm getting in on the ass. Okay. I'm <laughs> honestly during the pandemic, that self-checkout, uh-uh. Nope. <laughs> One banana, hundred dollars worth of groceries is out. Um you know what? Here's what's funny. When I was in college, um, there was a um a supermarket on campus. And I remember missing my, um, you know, cafeteria meal or my meal card wasn't paid. Okay. And I remember going, being very hungry and going into that supermarket and stealing peanut butter and jelly and bread. I mm -hmm. never considered myself a thief. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I'm sorry. I, you know, and it, I, I, I think it's not morally acceptable. I don't think what I did was right, but I know exactly why I did it because I was like, I am not going to eat until tomorrow and I am starving. I'm starving. And so I remember stealing peanut butter, jelly and bread. That's one kind of theft. The other kind is where you get a bunch of people who are part of a ring and they're just like, let's storm a store. We steal as much as we can. And then we put it on eBay or whatever. Okay. That's another kind of theft. Um, all of it is bad, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, um, you know, if, if we're, if what you say, what you just said, your example, Marina, of people looking at it and just losing faith, losing hope, and just saying, it doesn't make a difference. We're just going to blame these people, you know, uh, which are poor people. If we weren't blaming poor people, we could go after the, the ring. If we weren't blaming poor people, we could help them and they wouldn't be stealing. Most right. people do not want to steal. I'm sorry. I don't care what anybody says. Now, maybe you, maybe there are people out there that believe that some people are just have a natural disposition towards stealing stuff. You know, you know, there's some people that just naturally want to steal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> White women. <laughs> it's By yeah. the way, when I was a kid, that's who you thought was the person who was naturally like the, um, mm -hmm. the Winona Riders of the world is what they thought. Um, the kleptomaniacs, they call them, but like, yeah. they couldn't help themselves. They had everything they needed, but they just had this need to steal. It wasn't just, you know, black people steal. Um, but listen, maybe you feel that way. Most people don't want to steal. Think about, and, and, and I'm saying, anybody listening to this, think about how you feel when you walk into a store. You don't walk in going, oh, I wonder what I could get today. Then you walk in to buy something. Okay? Yeah. And that is how most people feel. And I think we're at a point where we tend to believe that most people are not like us. And what I try to do is think, and this is something I do to try to help myself stay grounded. When I look at strangers, no matter who they are, I try to picture them as my son or as, my, or as my daughter. I did that with the young man, sorry to interrupt, who was standing out in front of my door trying to get in. And I thought to myself, young black kid trying to get in my building right now, everyone is upset about packages being stolen. Mm -hmm. But I looked at him as if he were my, even though I don't have kids. Right. If he were my son, let me just talk to him. Right. And I said, are you trying to get in? And he said, thank you, ma'am. And all of a sudden the respect was there. The Because I just was like, he could be just afraid. Yeah. You never know. 
I mean, and so the deal is this, when people, when people stop looking, when they, when they look at what everybody else is doing as that's the other, that's what they do. Okay. As opposed to most people aren't doing that. That is an anomaly. That is the minority. That is, and I, I, that's the wrong word. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, exception. that is the exception to the rule, not mm-hmm. the rule itself. Um, you know, then you take on a different mindset, okay? Because when you start thinking like that, you know, uh, you start to lose faith in community. You start to lose faith in institutions. You start to lose faith in, um, you know, reconciliation and uh, solutions. You lose faith in all that stuff. And you need faith in all that stuff in order to make a change in the world. And so, you know, most people don't go into a store to stuff their to stuff stuff in their jackets and steal. They're there for the same reason you're there. And the people who are the exception to the rule, we have to figure out how do we deal with that problem as yeah. opposed to everybody stealing ain't nothing I can do. We can't do that. How we deal with Noye taking that banana and because <laughs> no, I you know the self checkout is very tempting. I gotta say, and during the like. Yep. Like they- it is hard. Like there's this one place I go and they, the the women are always like, you want to come to the cash register? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I got this. I know how to, I know. I, I, I got to tell you, I'm not going to tell you which stop and shop, but like there was a stop and shop during the pandemic where the workers understood and they would see, they would see you stealing and they would not care. Cause they're like, nobody has money right now. They didn't. Care. Well, they, they're, they're not employed for that reason. Exactly. And I, and I get it. Like you would yeah. see the security guards in the writings, seeing people, unless it's like really out of hand, they're not trained for, they're not security. They're working like a job mm-hmm. and they're worried about their lives too, by the way. And well, it's nowadays, just too much. Yeah. Like, listen, I used to be the security manager for Toys R Us for, for, for a little bit. And, um, wow. You know, let me just tell you, uh, I really enjoy catching people. <laughs> oh, you loved it, I, huh? I can sense that in what you were saying. I was like, he hates people that steal. I'm sorry, but I just, and this is me, of course, the college student who was stealing peanut butter, jelly, and bread. Boy, when I caught somebody, I was so damn happy. <laughs> this hour was great. Oh, no. Was Chuck damn Chuck didn't read the rest of the articles anyway. I do want to say something about the Emmett feel, though. I just feel like as much as we're not supposed to take the symbols of the government as actual progress, I think if Emmett Till's mother was alive to see a statue of him, she would appreciate that. But yes. Yeah. So that's the first thing I thought about, even though we're not supposed to take their symbols because it's not progress. (laughs) <laughs> so Biden will establish a national monument honoring Emmett Till, the black teen lynched in Mississippi on this Tuesday, which is the anniversary of Emmett Till's birth in 1941. It's just it's this Tuesday, right? Which is the 28th, I believe, or the 20. Uh, I didn't read this article. So let me tell you, who's Emmett Till? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> oh, Jesus! A minute, and they, they just so you know they also okay white guy. Uh, the Justice Department announced this in December of 2021 that they were closing the investigation. So this is another reason why it's really important because yeah. you know the the justice was not served in this case was not and we and know by the way there's this is these are the type of things that and people say you know why you want to live in the past you don't live in the past you remember the past and 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 it's important for us to do so so that uh you know we can understand that one where we come from and when you say you, you know we're not supposed to take symbols whatever but symbolism does have its place and it is a marker for progress that we have made but it is also a marker for how much progress we still have to make. So, you know, you're the that, Martin that's Luther King, I'm the Malcolm X. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And this is, I will have to end it there. And I'll go with you first, Noye. Oh. Where can our listeners find you? You can find me at noyecomedy.com. I'm going to be at, in DC the first weekend of August, uh, featuring for Zainab Johnson. And that'll be fun. And with friends like us, you can have 47 jobs and and an apartment. <laughs> you don't have to be in-house. <laughs> That's a b- weird one. I don't know why I said that one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Noya. And thank you for telling me about the woman at the Essence Fest oh, yes. that, you, that you met that listened to Friends Like Us. Do you want to give them a shout out? Do you remember their names? Or- uh, well, I'll give a shout out to the um, Black Women's Roundtable. Yes. of Mississippi and a shout out to the SBLC. <laughs> yeah, shout out Hello. to y'all. <laughs> Chuck? Um, you know what? Uh, you can go to uh, chucknicecomic.com and there's a link there to buy tickets to my comedy special, which I'll be taping in the fall. Ooh. And so please, um, if you're a person who likes science and what I call data and dick jokes, um, that's not the name of the special, but that's kind of how it's going to go. Uh, <laughs> uh, go there and get tickets. And with friends like us, you can raise the level of everything. Oh, you know? that's a good one. Yes. Thank you both so much. Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And with friends like us, it is always a community where you feel heard. Nice. Check us, Check us out. out.